Welcome back to another episode of Mechanical Freak Presents. In this episode, we talk to my friend Matt Van Dyne, who's a doctoral student at the University of Washington studying the history of uh, China, revolutionary China. Uh, We're going to talk to him about China, the coronavirus, and uh, a little bit about K-pop. So stick around. If you like these episodes, uh, they can be found on Patreon, on our Patreon page. Uh, Patrons get the Mechanical Freak Presents episodes a week early. So if you want to be cool like those people, uh, give us $5. Hey, those are the rules. I didn't make them up. All right. So without further ado... So earlier this week, when asked why Mississippi would not emulate China in its response to the coronavirus pandemic, the governor replied, Mississippi's never going to be China and it's never going to be North Korea. So the coronavirus panic in the United States has uh, relaunched a panic about China that is always simmering just sort of under the surface. So I thought it'd be a good time to bring on uh, my friend, Matthew Van Dyne, who is a graduate student at the University of Washington, who studies uh, China under Mao, which is from, you know, roughly the 1949 to like the 1970 or something or so, uh, which as Matt has uh, told me beforehand, is not the period in which coronavirus existed in China, (laughs) but but still knows more about China than I do. (laughs) Is all that accurate, Matt? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, maybe the the Chinese researchers were working on their bioweapons back in the Mao period, but but who knows? (laughs) (laughs) What do you know about the bio... What do you know about the bioweapons facility in Wuhan? Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that later, right? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I will say that, uh, while I'm sure Matt's pronunciation will be much better than mine, that I probably will murder at least 50 names in this, and I'll just apologize ahead of time. <laughs> um, so, Matt, I thought, you know, it's useful, uh, it'd be useful to talk to you because you can actually give us some actual background about China, because I feel like everybody in America has a, an opinion about China. None of us really know anything about it. And I thought the most basic question to ask is maybe, um, what is Wuhan? Where is it? <laughs> what What's it all about? Oh, interesting question, Brian. <laughs> um, yeah, so <laughs> Wuhan is a city of 11 million people on the Yangtze River. Um, it is the, uh, so yeah, it's currently a huge manufacturing hub, especially of the automobile industry. Uh, historically, it has been a big steel producer. Um, so it's a big industrial center. Um, its history is quite interesting. So Wuhan, the city of 11 million people today, the ninth most populous city in China, um, it's actually a conglomeration of three different cities that all sort of like are located at different points across the Yangtze River, this massive river that flows down from the Himalayas through central China. uh, And then like its mouth is near Shanghai and Long has been a huge source of transport throughout the country and the lower Yangtze region, which is um, Wuhan's not quite in, but people talk about the lower Yangtze region as traditionally being one of the wealthiest parts of China, sort of an agricultural breadbasket and whatnot. 
Um, so it's it's this conglomeration of three different cities, Wuchang, Hankou, and Hanyang, um, that are sort of now combined into the massive city of Wuhan. Uh, historically, I think one of the more interesting facts about Wuhan that um, connects to the topic of this of this this podcast about sort of you know new Cold War U.S. China relations is that um, in the 19th century it was opened up as one of the treaty ports that uh, foreign imperialist powers, including the United States as well as uh, Great Britain and France, uh, forced on China because they wanted to sell opium um, to China. So, you know, cool history there of, of imperialism, <laughs> um, you know, forcing open China for the purpose of selling drugs. How'd that opium trade work out for China? Oh, yeah, they, they loved it. <laughs> um, yeah, so like, I'm, but, but it is like a dramatic history. And I think it's important to talk about in reference to to the topic of today if you're into history, as I am. Um, I, I do think this experience of foreign imperialism since the mid-19th century, yeah, it, it continues to shape relations between China and the West and the U.S. Um, yeah, to the present day. And it's hard to like get out of that history in some ways. Yeah, so it's, it's the sort of uh, former like strategic sort of center point of commerce or you know trade point for commerce right mm-hmm. in the 19th century but i'm guessing was probably like a lot of cities in china uh relatively smaller until the 80s and 90s right and then it reached this you said 11 million people population yeah, yeah i mean it was an it was an important city uh and it was an important city throughout the early 20th century as well but yeah it's really since the market reforms of Deng Xiaoping in uh, the late 1970s, that there's been this massive urbanization in China um, and this flood of people to living in the cities and working in the cities. Uh, and, and it's grown into this massive, like new type of industrial hub. All right. So we have the city of 11 million people, which you said is only the ninth largest city in China, which is right, you yeah. know hard to, hard to imagine. Um, I, I guess just trying to drill this home a little more too, like like relative for dumb Americans, uh, how like how does the city fit into sort of the Chinese culture, right? Like in America, we have exactly three cities that matter: uh, New York City, Los Angeles, and Nashville, Tennessee. Um, you know, uh, and everything else kind of just gets forgotten, right? Uh, where to kind of does Wuhan fit into that for China? So I saw it referred to in one article I was reading to prepare for this podcast as the Chicago of China. That's probably like not really accurate, but um, but yeah, it's like a big industrial city that is also not quite the sort of like um, you know finance hub of the of the Chinese market mm-hmm. economy, which is more like Shanghai. The political hub is Beijing. Um, the sort of Ex, the uh, what, like there's a huge manufacturing area around like Guangdong and Shenzhen province that has emerged since the 1970 market market reforms as well. Um, it's often referred to as one of the uh, four furnaces of China, both because of the uh, climate that it gets very hot there during the summertime, but also this furnace idea has something to do with industrial production too, right? That it is a center of industry. Um, yeah. um, 
yeah, and and obviously has this history of being a center of being forced open by by imperialist powers too. Um, it also has, in terms of Chinese history, just like one more like fun fact um, is that <laughs> Wuhan was the uh, saw the beginning of the 1911 Chinese Revolution, which uh, caused the end of the uh, the Qing Dynasty, the last Chinese imperial dynasty. Uh, there was like a uprising among revolutionary army units stationed in uh, in Wuhan in 1911, and this sparks the the end of the the Chinese imperial system. Is going to take you know um, almost 40 years then for the communists to to come to power, um, but it, it has this important place in Chinese history in general too. So. Yeah, well, and so. We have this like large, you know, enormous city by American standards. It's definitely no backwoods. It's a major, you know, industrial center in China, right? And, uh, you know, to get it to what probably the only thing any American would know it for uh, in December of last year, obviously a, a, a funny thing happened at the market, right? Uh what, what, you know, just we'll have to go through every detail, but, you know, sort of like a rough sort of idea of like what happened in Wuhan vis-a-vis the coronavirus outbreak and whatnot. Right. So, I mean, I think this is, a, it's like a very contested timeline in general. And I think if you, uh, yeah, Googling around looking for timelines, you're probably going to find a variety of different timelines that disagree about certain basic facts, but um the basic, this is very unusual in historical arguments, in, right? Indeed, yeah. Or just like, you know, new <laughs> media reactions about like, what's yeah. going on. Um, so basically, in early December, um, some patients begin to show up at Wuhan's hospitals experiencing some, some symptoms of respiratory illness that sort of are undefined for a while. Um, and it's beginning to spread throughout this time and um i think december 1st is like the first known patient to experience symptoms presenting at a hospital now people have traced have have dated that back earlier of of november 17th being the the first case that people think but so the big thing that got played up a lot in um in the media both in the west and also in china was that there is this connection to the Hunan seafood wholesale market. Um, so this wet market of selling, um, you know, variety of types of animals to eat. Uh, and that like, you know, it's a market, people also eat at it. And people discuss that like, well, this was the source of the virus and that all the patients can be tr- tied back to this Hunan seafood wholesale market. Um, yeah. Well, maybe can we like pause just for a second to talk about this market a little bit too? Because I know, like, on uh, uh, my girlfriend's Facebook page, uh, you know, some of her older relatives are passing around this like panic video, which honestly, to, honestly, to me, look like three people in their backyard, but were like <laughs> clubbing a dog, <laughs> and like this is what was happening at the seafood market, and you know, without getting into the semantic battle of dogs not being seafood. um you know having having been in china i mean have you have you been in these markets i feel like a lot of fear-mongering about these markets yeah i mean so like i haven't been in this market i've been in markets in china that are selling animals 
I've only been in ones that are selling dead animals. So I think like, I've heard there are ones that they sell live animals at too, that you can eat, but like, you know, whatever, there are places that sell like live chickens in New York city that you can buy to eat too. Mm -hmm. Um, I can, uh, I can attest that in South Texas, there is um, quite a market for purchasing live goats and whatnot for (laughs) consumption. But yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean like, you know, a lot of these markets just look like kind of like a farmer's market in the u.s probably not quite as like bougie and fancy because like normal people shop there but like yeah you can like (laughs) buy your nice fish and eggs and and vegetables and whatnot and and like it's fine it's cool um which is you know not to say that there's not like a tradition of eating different types of animals than that we eat in the u.s um which like is fine like i don't know what like the the like mainstream u.s diet is supposed to be like only eating a cow or a chicken like you know it's it's one of these like silly things that just like gets played up in a very like racist way as like a stand-in for like the exotic orient and like the you know the backwards habits of people that are so strange um you know like I, i think many people have encountered those types of stereotypes um you know and um and stereotypes against Chinese food in general as being strange. Um, But yeah, I I think in general, though, the like consumption and production of these, of, you know, animals that are not common livestock animals is very much overplayed, at least in my experience of like, you know, living and and eating and shopping in China for like, you know, I've, I've lived there on and off for a couple of years um, I certainly never saw any anyone like eating a bat or anything like that. So. You you weren't just grabbing a bat every day on your way to work, just I mean, chomping a, on its wing, you know. It's a great snack, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's very reminiscent. I feel like um every American of a certain age who watched uh I don't know why it's totally escaping me the name of it, but the second Indiana Jones film. <laughs> where they're just like taking the head off the the skull cap off the monkey and like eating the brains out of her like they're just convinced that's how like everyone in asia is eating all the time oh yeah totally Um, yeah yeah and i feel like you know all that stuff like only reveals like the small mindedness of the people making those stereotypes more often than not right like yeah um, it, it also speaks to this like general distrust of like eating a different type of food, just like even if the ingredients are like common ones that like, oh, like it has chili peppers in it, it's like must be like disgusting. Um, yeah, it's like, well, it's actually delicious, but like, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so so I think I think that is definitely overplayed, but, but like it is it is a thing that like is a concern of the Chinese state that like um that there there is this this trade in in, in exotic animals to eat and the thing is it's like not like that is a thing that people are eating on mass on a daily scale it's a thing that some wealthy people eat sometimes like we'll eat you know a turtle or something that is you know we don't always eat turtles in the u.s um and i think it's maybe you're not supposed to eat turtles in china either but some people do and it's like a status type of thing but it's not like a very common thing um 
So. Well, I, okay, so <laughs> this is a little side story, but I have this friend in L.A. who is quite the, uh, I guess, gourmand or whatever you want to call it, food enthusiast, and he was telling me of his epic quest to try and get invited, apparently to this invite-only restaurant where essentially all they do is serve you weird meat that, like, you can't uh, legally... <laughs> serve at a restaurant <laughs> which I th- yeah which I, I think his description was that they, like you get like whale and stuff oh, yeah. <laughs> so so pretend like this and it was very high end right this was not like come to the back of my shack and get like weird food it was you know a high-end restaurant for the wealthy but yeah so not just in china <laughs> yeah yeah no totally yeah and like yeah there, there's like food trends and stuff when i lived in shanghai two years ago like the big like crawfish was like a huge trend which like isn't particularly strange is delicious but it like from what i'd heard it was like a relatively recent trend that like there'll be like streets that are just like every restaurant is selling crawfish and stuff and, and people go out and eat their crawfish and it's great mm-hmm. um so um so initially they have this concern over the seafood market right and then uh and then sort of where do we go from there um so from there it there's like then i guess this is like december there's basically Mm -hmm. some cases showing up at hospitals around wuhan and some doctors are beginning to take notice um that there does seem to be a new viral outbreak going on around town although people don't really know what it is for a while right and like why why would they um Mm -hmm. so probably like the um most famous doctor that is supposed to have sort of identified this as a as a new problem um is dr li wenliang who reported via an internet post that wuhan had a like sars related outbreak um and so uh sars what does it stand for like severe acute respiratory syndrome is that right i believe so (laughs) yeah um so sars is a coronavirus as far as I know, I don't really know what a coronavirus is. I'm not a doctor. Um, yeah, we should be quiet. Neither of us are doctors. No, no, no. But like, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I guess take our, our health advice with some grains of salt. But, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, consi- I consider myself an expert after reading so many Facebook posts, you know, the past few weeks. Though. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, so, so SARS is a disease that had an outbreak um, in southern China and in Hong Kong in 2003 um, and seems to be and it, so it's a like related virus to the novel coronavirus that comes to be called COVID-19. Uh, so initially, though, like Dr. Li Wenliang and other of the doctors are sort of suggesting like, yeah, this seems to be something maybe similar to SARS which people are super scared about. Uh, and, and so like SARS is much more deadly than COVID-19. Which I think it has something like a 30% mortality rate, which like, you know, we're all already kind of fucked with COVID-19, but it's like, you know, the mortality rate is much lower. Um, but COVID-19 mm-hmm. seems to like spread much more easily. Although th- that's all information that is coming out after the fact. So anyways, yeah. like, yeah, they still don't know what this is at this point, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so Li Wenliang um reports on the internet. Some other doctors do as well. Uh iFun is one at the Wuhan Central Hospital. So she posts information on WeChat. Um and these doctors are going to be summoned in by the police and will be reprimanded for 
uh, for spreading rumors. Um, and, you know, this has been made, like, a huge deal of in, in the Western media, that this is, like, this is where, like, China had the chance to stop it, and they didn't because of the, like, quote-unquote, like, authoritarian nature of everything. Um, and I mean, obviously, like, probably people should have been listening more and, and, and spreading the information more widely. But I think, like, trying to, like, put ourselves in the position of a public health official in China or, like, in any country as you're, like, seeing a new type of disease develop that you're kind of unsure what it is seems like it might be serious, but, like, also hard to tell. Also, like, it's just, yeah, people are still figuring out what's what it is, what's going on, how it's transmitted, if it's transmitted in between people. Um, and I think there is probably a fear about, like, well, panic about over a pandemic, uh, especially because the legacy of SARS really did uh, shock the, the Chinese healthcare system um, a bit and make it make... Uh, officials in China feel that like they need to be more prepared for future diseases and whatnot. Um, yeah, in some sense, you know, yeah, reading into this a little bit, you know, I, I actually kind of became a little sympathetic to the like, hey, guys, you can't just say whatever you want on the internet line. In that uh, course, in 2020 hindsight, you can say, well, they were right. Like, it was this new disease that, uh, you know, potentially SARS-related, all this kind of stuff. But it's not like they were the only people in the world that were saying stuff about what was going on, you know, like this, this idea of uh, later on, you know, trying to adjudicate this after the fact. Yeah, I think is a little ridiculous. And also, uh, you wonder what the response diff- would have been different. You know, they still don't even know what the disease is. So what, what kind of different response do you get at that time if... Uh, they, yeah, the Chinese government reads this on WeChat and decides we better act, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but who knows? Yeah, and like, who knows, right? It's it's in the past, right? So yeah, you know, gonna... people didn't want to make it public until like they they needed to, um, uh, and like I guess so. Yeah, th- there's like a little bit of a dynamic to like the state structure that I'll maybe like bring up now that like. And well, so I want to keep on returning to this theme throughout this conversation mm-hmm. today that like when, you know, all these references to like authoritarian, totalitarian, dr- draconian, like it makes it seem like the like Xi Jinping sitting there in Beijing just like has all the power and is all seeing and all knowing and, you know, has complete control over everything. Things are actually like way more decentralized than that. Um, just like local provincial officials at like China's divided up into these big provinces, like they have a lot of power too, and th- they're assessed on like GDP growth in terms of like whether they're promoted or demoted. So like mm-hmm. there's just like this desire not for like something to go wrong um, in the, the 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 part of the country that you're an administrator of, which is you know not. That like kind of makes sense, right? That like you wouldn't want to like mm-hmm. conclusions about a disaster when like yeah, like like you want your province to be doing well, uh, you want your city to be doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which you know, see Donald Trump making these like ridiculous statements, like going back and forth every single day about like whether this is anything at all to be worried about, which he you know can't quite do anymore at least, but like was doing for a very long time. Um, 
And I think it's like yeah. the, simil- the similar urge, right? Of like not wanting to admit that there's a problem, which, which yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, you also don't really want people to panic. Um, which, yeah, you don't want to necessarily say it's a once in a century pandemic every week, right? No, no, no. yeah. Can't be the yeah. boy you cry pandemic, right? So. Uh, well, I th- and I think there's a certain theme that we'll go back to, too, uh, this sort of uh, weird curve that we grade the Chinese state on uh, in this sense of like, yeah, there probably is this sort of uh, bureaucratic, um, you know, sort of, uh, I don't know, laziness is the wrong word, but the sort of bureaucratic stifling, right, where, yeah, they don't want to report that something bad is happening in their region, state, etc. Uh, unlike in America, where, you know, politicians are famously able to criticize their country and state, you know, like, right. <laughs> I, I mean, uh People should have like some little more like level-headed understanding of how politics works. Oh yeah, yeah. Like a lot of these dynamics are not unique to China at all. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we get into to January, right? And uh, we basically the, the cases are growing, right? Yeah. Well, actually, like before we get into January, I think it's interesting that on December thirty-first, like one day after uh, Li Wenliang had his internet post, that. Uh, the World Health Organization's China office was notified that there were cases of pneumonia with unknown causes, um, which I do think is like helps to counter some of this narrative of like like the Chinese totalitarian state was trying to make sure like no information got out at all because like yeah I mean they were like contacting the WHO trying to like inform them about things going on like very early on too like Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that they wanted to make it public but like yeah like they they were like telling people pretty quickly um so yeah yeah um so yeah anyways getting into january then like um so there's more and more cases reported the seafood market is closed on january 1st um I saw like a few different dates when I was doing research for like when it was like identi- like when it was genetically sequenced and identified as COVID-19, what we all know it as. One date I had was January 7th when like health officials like like sort of identify the disease as a new virus and then again inform the WHO about that. Uh, the first mm-hmm. death occur- occurs on January 11th. The next day on January 12th, uh, the, uh, China will share genetics, the genetic sequence of the virus that is going to be key for developing the test kits that, you know, no one can get in the United States, but like other people can get more. But, yeah. In other countries, you can get them, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if, we have, if we have any international listeners, you know, they can, uh, they can be happy about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and then it's just the sort of slow process of more cases developing, more information being shared back and forth in between the Chinese Ministry of Health and the World Health Organization. Um, so on January 14th, the WHO would announce that there are no known cases of human-human transmission. Um, and like, again, in the sort of like timeline narrative of maybe like yeah, the counter narrative to the like evil China not sharing information one. Well, I mean, human to human transmission is like the thing to be really concerned about, it seems, right? And if like the WHO is still saying this on January 14th, it suggests that once again, people are like a little bit still unsure about like what this disease is. 
how it is transmitted, how dangerous it is, and what to do about it. Um, and that's that confusion was not just from Chinese public health officials, but was also from the WHO as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so on January 20th, the WHO would produce a situation report on, um, on what's going on, which I was looking at earlier today. And it's like kind of interesting to, to read through. At that date, there were 282 confirmed cases with three deaths. Um, and at that point, though, it's like the report is kind of suggesting that things are being transmitted human to human. Um, yeah. And then very soon after that, uh, Wuhan public health officials admit human to human transmission on January 20th. Um, on January 21st, a bunch of things happen. So first, the People's Daily newspaper, which is the sort of state-run New York Times of China, like the the, the newspaper mm. record that you can buy in, in any city in the country and is seen as sort of a, it's, you know, it's, it's a newspaper, but it's also seen as a bit of a, like, um, the uh, the voice of the like official the official voice of, of China that like articles in People's Daily are sort of announcing what the leaders of the of the Communist Party are are thinking, um, and on that day they they ran an article on on the novel coronavirus and began to highlight Xi Jinping would be leading this response. So you know Xi Jinping does have like yeah. He's a charismatic leader, sort of, despite like seemingly like lacking any like charisma when you like actually watch him on TV. But he, yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you're in China, see a uh, such a dumb question to ask. Is he like a popular leader? I guess you know, to what degree is any politician? Popular yeah, I mean, leader, it's like, yeah. you know, it's complicated. Like some people like him, some people don't. Like, <laughs> yeah, like yeah, it really varies. You know, um. Yeah. I mean, he's seen as like a very strong leader in comparison to two previous leaders. And he's seen as also um, like the Xi Jinping era starting in 2012. It's like seen as something a bit different than what was coming before. Um, Mm -hmm. Things are changing in 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 some way from what was going before and that Xi Jinping is building like a new type of, of state, a new type of China. Um, so there's a sense that things are changing, but like things have been changing dramatically and very rapidly in China for quite a long time now. So, um, in some ways people are also a bit used to that change, but, um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, you know, I learned from the New York times that apparently he's going from, uh, Deng Xiaoping thought back to Mao thought. So, uh, just looking forward to the great leap forward from Xi Jinping. But. Yeah. I mean, that is like <laughs> complete, you know, like a complete misreading of, of the situation of, of both Mao Zedong's thought and also Xi Jinping's thought. So, uh, well, I'll, yeah. I will tell you again if we just have a little aside I'll tell you a funny little irony of that is the idiot writer for the New York Times who is historically a fucking moron during the 2008 uh, financial crisis he had this article in the Times this editorial in the Times about how we should look to Germany in 1933 for solutions to the crisis and in the article he's like look everybody gets hung up on the bad parts of Nazism oh, but, not on, but forget what, the good parts what, what one is this? <laughs> 
This is David Leonhart, and the funny, I guess the I guess the reason I was going into this aside is David Leonhart's, and this is an actual true story, David Leonhart's father is a dyed-in-the-wool Maoist, all right? So David Leonhart was a red diaper baby, and uh, I guess this is, you know, everybody's always trying to get back at their dad. We all got daddy issues, but, <laughs> like, is it went to China Maoist, but anyways, go ahead. Wow, <laughs> Damn, that's interesting. Yeah, I'll have to look into it. Yeah. 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 Uh apparently in his dying days, he talked about because he eventually got a fancy job running a private school in New York. And in his dying days said that, you know, he basically wished he could have served the people more, <laughs> not chased after money. But yeah, anyways, go ahead. Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> Just a funny story about a weird New York Times columnist. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, he'll come up later, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. So, like, j- the, but yeah, like these few days in January are important. So, like, uh, you know, it's very publicly an- acknowledged that this is a big problem. Um, and then on January twenty third, uh, Wuhan will be put on lockdown. And at the time, there's, you know, around 300 or so known cases. Um, and then it's going to be very quickly, like, extended over the entire province of, of Hubei. Um, so. Yeah. And so now is maybe a good time to talk a little bit about, so Wuhan's on lockdown and talk a little bit about the Chinese uh, healthcare system and how it functions. So I assume... Everybody in China receives, uh, potentially receives health care through their employer, which they pay a monthly fee for uh, that goes along with like fees at the doctor and things like that. So going on lockdown and potentially being laid off could really affect their health care system and people's ability to, you know, deal with this crisis. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, so like the healthcare the, the health insurance program in in China is like very complicated and there's like a labyrinth of competing systems uh yet yeah, you're right that in cities there is this employer based uh based one there's also like a few different schemes that are not employer based but are like residence based based on sort of like where your mm-hmm. household registration is supposed to be um, Which, by the way, I was totally joking about the employer base, but I didn't realize that was true. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. That, that was like part of what I was going to talk about at some point about. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, holy shit. That's terrifying. Um, yeah, no. So it's so this is like um, in terms of the like healthcare response. I think what's what's interesting is that in some ways, some of the problems that we're seeing in the U.S. in terms of there not being like universal public health care for everyone like that it that is similar in china what's different is that like very quickly all treatment all testing as well as treatment for covid19 that was made completely free to all patients so there wasn't this barrier of like not having insurance and trying to um to to to, to get health care which i you know we earlier today that reports of a 17 year old in los angeles who died of COVID 19 who initially was refused treatment because he didn't have health insurance um you know like horrifying story um and you know it's hard not to think that like well part of that is that well even if like testing might supposed to be free like 
treatment in the U.S., as far as I know, for COVID-19 is absolutely not free, right? And if you don't have health insurance, then you're going to be screwed. Um, so, so I think making the, the testing and the treatment free was super important early on for trying to control the virus. Um, but, but in terms of healthcare in China in general, like, yeah, there are these various different complicated schemes based on either employment or residence that ultimately like don't cover a whole lot for many people. Um, the employment based one is the best. The two sort of the two ones that are much more uh, overreaching or like that re that cover many more people. The so-called uh, urban resident basic medical insurance scheme or the new rural cooperative medical scheme um, ultimately like help China cover. Um, more than a billion of its citizens, which is great. Um, they don't really pay very much money. They don't actually cover much in terms of treatment. So like getting healthcare is still like a huge problem for many people. Uh, and there's lots of stories of like needing to bribe doctors and, and, and just, yeah, that if you're wealthy, you can, you can get healthcare much, much more easily than if you're not. Um, mm -hmm. again, that's not novel to China. Um, yeah, but which I, I think is important to talk about here, just in the sense of, in terms of the disease spreading early on, um, there probably are some of the same issues in the U.S. of people like not seeking out healthcare because um, even if they like are infected by some strange new disease because they don't have health insurance, um, so that probably like helped mm -hmm. to some early spread as well. But um, but when the when the sort of the, the the state in Beijing as well as the local provincial officials really recognize this as a huge problem, they do go into like you know very high gear about trying to deal with the situation. Um, so yeah, so let's go into that maybe a little bit. So one one I, I just want to sort of mention this uh, sort of short documentary that you had sent me from cgtn called lockdown one month in wuhan which is actually like uh i don't even know how to describe watching it it was extremely depressing in some points extremely uplifting yeah. in others but um is is definitely worth the time and we'll put a link somewhere for people to actually watch that but uh what exactly are they doing in the lockdown like what's the state response right so the state response is uh, heavily oriented towards trying to do a few different things. One is like figure out how many people people have this new disease. So like test as many people as possible. And then the like other one is to quarantine people who do have it and are connected to people who have it, which China does a much better job of than, than we're doing in the U S because of more testing, because of more healthcare workers sort of going around and trying to, trying to identify people and trying to, to cordon off different areas of, of the city. But also then there's, is this just huge province level lockdown of all transport inside and outside is shut down all businesses outside of, you know, food basically are shut down or, you know, people working from home as they're doing, as some people are able to do here as well. Um, so everything gets like shut down in a way that has not happened in U.S. cities yet, um, and the scale yeah. is different. 
Yeah, and by lockdown, uh, we mean something much more intense than, say, what's happening in Seattle right now in the sense that, like, you order your groceries online, somebody delivers them, and by delivers them, leaves them outside, and you go out and pick it up at a separate time, right? Right, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And, you know, as an aside, China has, like, the most amazing, like, food delivery services, like, in all times that, you know... <laughs> that like everyone orders food all the time and just like the streets of Chinese cities are full of people on, on, on scooters driving around food delivery orders and stuff. So th- that some of that stuff exists already in like a way that it doesn't exist in the U S um, which probably help things. Um, but yeah, I mean like it's still, there's a huge human cost to these, these efforts as there would be anywhere, right. That people are stuck in their houses. People are concerned. People are getting sick. People are having trouble getting healthcare when they are sick, even though, um, you know, there are these heroic efforts to send um, all these healthcare workers to the province to construct new hospitals and days, which, you know, that's um, probably some of us have seen those, those images already of, of these massive hospitals being constructed. Um, yeah, I mean, they built two hospitals in like two weeks. Um how how do they do that? Because we apparently can't build like five miles of rail line without having a ten year lead time and going you know a hundred billion dollars over budget. So how does that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think like the economic model in the People's Republic of China is the state is not afraid to spend money on things and to and and to like go into debt spending on money on things. Um, and some of that has been like key to 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 Chinese economic development, especially since uh, the 2008 world recession. Actually, there's this huge shift to mm-hmm. investment in infrastructure projects, um, probably most notably high speed rail networks that are all built incredibly fast at very great cost. Um but it's like you know the 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 banks are loaning to developing corporations that are also state-owned enterprises um so just yeah there's like a political willpower and the sort of and the way the economic system works is different but it is more about state investment in things that are not just like drones and um guns as they are in the united states um does does uh, Xi Jinping, who I assume is the sole member of the Chinese Communist Party over there, does he not understand that the state budget is just like your family budget and you can only spend what you take in? Does yeah. he not understand this? <laughs> I guess not. I guess not. Yeah. 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 So, and I think that, well, I think the other thing that's interesting to highlight here too, other than the, just this, I mean, just insane hospital construction that ends up happening is they ship in 30,000 healthcare workers from, you know, other provinces in China into uh into Wuhan and Hubei, right? Uh how the hell do you do that? That's a good question. I mean, <laughs> I think some of it is there um like people aren't really being forced in, like people are still able to be mobilized for these national projects. Um at the same time, like well, the, you know, Healthcare workers in the U.S. and Italy and South Korea have all shown like like everyone's like incredibly like heroic, right? And like I think you're seeing mm-hmm. doctors coming out of retirement in, in Italy and probably soon in the U.S. too to like 
you know, like put themselves on the line for this profession in this incredibly heroic way. Um, and I think you're, yeah, you're, you're seeing that on a mass scale in China. Um, and I think like what's important to, to note here is that when this, this provincial lockdown is happening, the number of cases is relatively small. Um, you know, certainly much smaller than it probably was in Seattle, uh, or certainly much smaller than it was in Seattle when Jay Inslee gave the stay-at-home order on Monday, right? When, like, we had, like, yeah. cases, like, almost 2,000 at that point? I, I, that's, like, yeah. I believe there, but... as of this morning, we've officially, the United States has officially passed China on um, known cases. <laughs> Yeah. of uh of COVID-19 yeah. uh with the estimation being that that's about one-tenth of the actual cases in the United right. States so I, I think it's safe to say Seattle has blown past uh probably Wuhan itself yeah. already but yeah yeah which so and I think like that's important to to point out that like while well, they're like doing this earlier on in the epidemic which meant that um you know the healthcare system across the entire country was not overstretched as it's already becoming in the U.S. Uh, and that, yeah, there was like some people to be mobilized from from different hospitals around the country to to go in um, and help out. Yeah, yeah, by isolating uh, the region, right? They were, you know, the other, you know, you could bring in say medical workers from say Beijing or whatever because Beijing wasn't also in the middle of a giant you know, outbreak, right? Whereas here, you know, it seems like we're all in the middle of the outbreak now. Um, And I was also kind of curious, like, what are your thoughts on this? So China, and maybe, you know, you can explain for uh, uh, our listeners a little bit of this, but China has this sort of history of the idea of like a romantic history, the idea of like the barefoot doctor or whatever, like, you know, heroically going to the countryside to provide medical services or whatever. Um, I kind of wondered to what degree that like, that they can still mobilize people on that on that sort of storyline, right? Or more, mobilize people on that sort of uh, that appeal to sort of the national history, right? Yeah, I think I think it works for some people more than others. I think there's like a lot of people who are just you know all about like pragmatic living, trying to like you know make money in this changing economic world of, of contemporary China. Um, but yeah, I think there is this legacy of, of mobilizing the population to tackle problems that does not quite exist in the U.S. Um, among mm. other places, it doesn't exist. So I think that historical legacy probably does help and they can, like, you know, refer back to that legacy just in, in you know, in, in, in party proclamations and stuff. Uh, and, and people see this as contributing to this, to this national project um, in a in probably a different way um, than a lot of people do in the U.S. So I, th- I think that legacy is important, although I don't want to like overstate it because a lot has changed since the Maoist period and a lot has changed since the Barefoot Doctor. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, there is that legacy. Yeah, yeah. So they have this lockdown basically at the end of, uh, what, January in Wuhan. So what ends up happening? How, like, how does the lockdown actually affect their number of cases? Right. So, I mean, it begins to fall. They begin to flatten the curve as, um, you know, we those graphs that are circulating a lot about, like, how social distancing is going to, like, stop the spread of new cases. And, and that begins to happen. Um, so February 22nd, the new infection rate falls to 397. Um, March 7th, 
China reports only 99 new cases on March 18th. They report zero new cases in China or domestic cases. I think they're still getting mm-hmm. uh, cases from people coming uh, coming in. A lot of Chinese people coming back to China um, as things get worse all around the world. That it, you know, people are sort of like, "Shit, time to go home." Things look way better there than than you know. In the US <laughs> or Italy. Um, which now has been stopped that I think it was yesterday that China has pretty much stopped all um, all uh, new foreign arrivals, uh, including of, of Chinese citizens like returning to China too, um, in mm-hmm. an effort to like stop a like second like a new wave of, of cases. So um, um, which yeah sucks for those sucks for a lot of people who are not able to go home obviously but um but you know makes some sense given how bad things are getting everywhere yeah uh packing a bunch of people on a plane and then just bringing them you know in or whatever might be a a bad choice at this point right um yeah so over the course of a month, right, they go from lockdown, they're building hospitals, they're sending people door to door, and they're able to actually, you know, as far as we can tell, contain uh, this virus outbreak, uh, which we know that it must be fairly well contained because the only response you seem to be able to get in America about this is, uh, oh, so you believe their numbers all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, when talking about China, which means it must be fairly well contained once we've gone to the putting my hands over my ears phase of, yeah. <laughs> of yeah. argument. Um, but yeah, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about the sort of American response to this. And, you know, just the the fucking articles that have been coming out in the U.S. Of, about, you know, China's response to COVID-19, all this uh, from our, our previously mentioned friend, David Leonhardt, right? We have Chairman Mao and the coronavirus, mm-hmm. uh, Nicholas Kristof, also the New York Times, coronavirus spreads and the world pays for China's dictatorship. Um, you know, just absolute fucking, you know, baiting trash. But... I wanted to highlight this amazing one that was in the Washington Post from my boy, Mark Thiessen, who's, uh, if you don't know who this fucking guy is, uh, I, I did a little looking into him for everybody. But uh, he, his whole deal was he was like defending torture under the Bush administration uh, and then after the Bush administration. So naturally, he was hired on at the Washington Post to write editorial columns. Uh, but he has this... Just amazing, amazing bit here that I'm going to read, and I just want to get your sort of opinion on it here. He says, want to know why the U.S. economy is in free fall, why restaurants and bars are closing, putting millions out of work, and why the airline industry is facing possible bankruptcy, why schools across the nation are shutting down, leaving students to fall behind and parents without safety, safe places to send their children every day, why the stock market is plummeting wiping out the retirement and college savings of millions of Americans, why the elderly are isolated in nursing homes and tens of millions who don't have the option of teleworking, have no idea how they're going to pay their bills. Answer, because China is a brutal totalitarian dictatorship. So I uh, didn't, wasn't aware that China had done all those things, but uh, (laughs) what are your sort of thoughts on this just bizarre uh, American response in the editorial pages? 
Yeah, I mean, like, so for all of those questions that he that he asked, like, well, there's an answer that is very much about like the problems within the U.S. economy and society, right? Like, like none of those are China's fault. Um, first off, just saying that off the bat, um, and and yeah, I think my interpretation is like, yeah, these are like the this is the ruling class justifying their own behavior through creating China as this this new Cold War boogeyman that like well you know this is all China's fault this is all Russia's fault so like fuck it let's just like keep on like living this like weird nihilistic lifestyle <laughs> um yeah I don't you know it's it, it's frustrating to to read right I, and, and I mean this idea of China as a brutal totalitarian dictatorship um like yes, there are problems with, like, the way information is distributed uh, and that some of that was revealed early on in this this epidemic. But, like, they also, like, went into high gear in terms of building hospital and trying to provide for people and, like, things weren't perfect and, and people were, like, pretty pissed off about certain aspects as, as one would expect in any, like, sort of massive effort to try to contain a very scary disease. But, like, yeah, it's just it's you know it's it's, it's kind of just like out of nowhere, right? Um, um, I don't know, and I think it also is connected to this other idea that you see in a lot of New York Times editorials and and other sources too, that the U.S. hegemony in the world is being threatened by China, that China is growing powerful, and that China growing powerful is bad for the world. But like, you know, I think it's just like a thinly veiled, like, well, it's, it's like bad for like the stock portfolios of the people that these journalists are the mouthpieces for. Um, but. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, I think the, the term we used to use for this, right, is a yellow peril, right? Um, you know, I guess maybe since what, the late 19th century, the Chinese have somehow been menacing every aspect of American life. Um Something I guess they've done completely subconsciously or unconsciously. <laughs> um, I, I thought it had reached this particularly interesting moment when uh, during the last Democratic debate on CNN, absolute fucking moron Dana Bash had asked the candidates, you know, what consequences China should face for, you know, unleashing this virus on the United States, essentially asking them like, should we go to war with China over coronavirus? <laughs> and it was really astonishing that nobody thought that was weird after the debate. That that, that was asked, like that was a serious question. Um, oh yeah, no, yeah, no, it's 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 wild, right? I mean, like that notion that, and, and I think it like it's yeah tied to these old racist ideas of, of yellow peril that I like so the so one of the one of the stereotypes emerging of, from like, this long history of yellow peril and like Chinese exclusion in the 19th century is tied to like stereotypes about health and hygiene too so like these are even like going back to like really old nasty ideas um and putting a new spin on them too um but I think it's just like you know I would hope that most people would agree that viruses have no nationality or race or ethnicity or gender or whatever. Um, and it's like weird to think of punishing a country for like, what was like a humanitarian disaster that, that could have happened anywhere. 
uh, and you know, various diseases have emerged in other places around the world too. And the notion that one should punish someone for public health crises is is kind of disgusting. It's like this idea that um, I don't know, yeah, that there's like a famine in a country and we're gonna add on to it by by you know, punishing them for some, for some reason. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting that in that same debate uh, where I guess we should take seriously the question of, you know, I guess uh, either engaging in sanctions, which I think was Joe Biden's uh, recommendation, or going to war with China over coronavirus. That was taken seriously, but, you know, nobody bothered to ask the question that, you know, in Iran, which is having an enormous, you know, COVID-19 outbreak, uh, you know, why should the U.S. not be punished for continuing, I mean, completely murderous economic sanctions against Iran while in the middle of a public health outbreak. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Interesting that that gets left out, but yeah. Indeed, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so going from there, I, I, I kind of am curious, you know, you, you, you know, sort of read some, you know, the Chinese press and stuff like that and some of these you know, online, uh, you know, online response to people in China. What it would have been some of the internal criticisms in China about the response to the virus? Yes, I mean, there, there's a lot of internal criticisms from various segments in society. It's like hard to generalize, right? Because um, it's like generalizing about Twitter, right? Like when you're <laughs> yeah. wall or something like different posts that people have, like, you know, and I'm I, like, I don't know, I guess this is, would, would be interesting actually to read foreign coverage of Twitter and like how people generalize about like the ideas coming out of Twitter and stuff. But, um, but the amount that that like reflects like the massive opinion in society is very hard to say. But <laughs> um, that being said, yeah, so after, especially after Li Wenliang died, there was a huge outpouring of anger that he was not listened to more. Um, and uh, and like some of that might have been played up in, in, in Western press, but it, I think it was very real that there was a lot of anger that things could have happened quicker um, if, if he had been listened to and other whistleblowers had been listened to earlier on. Uh, yeah, and there's a couple different natures of criticism. There's sort of like these overarching criticisms of the entire system of, of, of how China is run um going straight to like Xi Jinping as well that like those types of criticisms were yeah like very quickly censored um but then there's other criticisms more about the local government itself um and what's kind of interesting is some of those criticisms of the local government were actually like taken up by the elites in the Chinese Communist Party um including Xi Jinping and actually the um so the mayor of Wuhan, uh, Zhou Xianwang, and then also the party chief of, of the, the local branch of the Chinese Communist Party, Ma Guoqiang, um, they both apologize for the early, like for their mishandling of the situation early on and offered to step down. And I think the party chief Ma did like was removed on, on February 13th. Um, so there is this sort of like, so I think that it's an interesting case of how like the the Chinese Communist Party elites are reacting to grassroots criticisms of the handling of the situation 
um, and then coming in after the fact and punishing people for it. Um, whether that's like an effective way of, of stopping that from happening in the future, that's a you know open question, obviously. But I think it is interesting, like how some of these, uh, yeah, the the, the the grassroots criticisms happening on the internet as well as just you know people having conversations um, do lead to some at least personnel changes, if not policy changes. Um, there's this uh, in terms of other responses. I think in the past few days, there's also been um, this new shift to like when to looking at like oh actually like china's response seems pretty good and like you know it's like kind of like what we would call a nationalist response of sort of mocking the u.s to some extent um mm-hmm. so like four of the elites of hubei province were being called the hubei f4 then i guess f4 refers to a japanese manga series named the boys over flower that is about four young men who are, you know, the big elites at a elite private high school, like the they they run the school or something. It was also the name of a um of a Taiwanese pop band, I guess. And 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 people were, were sort of poking fun at the 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 officials in Hubei province by calling them the Hubei F four as sort of the <laughs> bumbling elites that that handle things incorrectly. Um Trump is now being called the F1 by, by, by some people, which is kind of interesting. Um, so it's like <laughs> Trump is now like fitting into this model of the, the bumbling officials too. Um, well, yeah. So like, there, that's all to say, like there's a wide variety of different interpretations, right. And some like super, you know, pro nationalist ones, some very, very critical, um, yeah, uh, it, you know, very hard to generalize, but yeah. Uh, so in a city or in a country of what, 1.4 billion people, there's not a unified opinion about anything. No, no, no. no. <laughs> no, no. I, I was, I'm very happy to hear that in Chinese social media, they observe the same rules that we do here of um, using cartoons, in this case, The Simpsons, the United States to make fun of people. And in our case, K-pop, as opposed to a Taiwanese pop band <laughs> to make fun of people. So. <laughs> I'm sure K-pop is used to. K-pop is popular everywhere. So. Uh, yeah. uh, made exclusively for export, which is a whole weird conversation. That, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, really like after the, the Asian financial crisis, that that's like South Korea was going to like one way of like <laughs> one thing like after the economy like crashed in the late 90s that like they invested heavily yeah. in that and stuff. <laughs> yeah, it was a way to uh, bring in foreign currency to the, for their foreign currency reserves, right? That didn't require, you know, like a capital output for the most part. But yeah, I mean, just a whole bizarre thing that we can't get into because I'll talk to you for two hours about that. But <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I, you know, friend of the show, Greg, uh, <laughs> had asked me this in absolutely insane question when I told him, I was gonna, oh, I'm going to interview this guy who studies China about um, coronavirus. He goes, oh, you should ask him about how uh, the U.S. probably spread coronavirus in a, a, a military exercise at Wuhan or whatever, which led to me then putting that into Google because that just sounded like an insane collection of words. So I put it into Google and it does turn out there is like there is some... I'm not saying that this is a true story. I'm saying there are some officials in China or maybe some prominent figures who have brought this up. And I'm just curious, have you heard about this? <laughs> what are your sort of thoughts on it? So I hadn't really heard about it until you sent me the article about it. Um, yeah. But I'm trying to like, there, it was like, some, like I think it was like the 
minister of uh, like the foreign ministry or something was um, saying that, right? Is that right? <laughs> I think it was just some like rando guy that has some job in, in the government, right? You know, yeah. it, uh, it was it was not the equivalent of, of say, uh, the president or something saying yeah. it. It's more the equivalent of like some guy in our, you know, the senator from Arkansas says. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it was something about the like, um, yeah, that this was like a bio weapon that the U.S. either on purpose or accidentally um, released in China, um, you know, to to wreak havoc. That was supposed to. I think it was tied to um, Fort Detrick in Maryland closing last year because of safety concerns, which was Fort Detrick has, has long been the like center of the U.S.'s bioweapons program. Um, biological mm-hmm. weapons and that like it i think it closed last summer because of um you know concerns and and whatnot um so yeah like there's now this like this new like idea of of, of that maybe the u.s did this as a bioweapon which i think is like you know obviously like r- r- ridiculous on the surface when you're looking at what's happening in the united states right now like maybe it was like a horribly like bumbling accident type of thing um, but I, I mean, like, the, is a very, very sort of like understandable response to Donald Trump calling it the Chinese virus and like defending his his calling it that, right? Um, yeah, yeah, and I think the fact that uh, if it was a true story, that it would have uh, rebounded so stupidly back on us and hurt us so much more is the only evidence that it is true, actually. But <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, obviously nonsense, but. Uh, it was just like one of those just weird little things, which I'm glad that there's uh, a, a sort of kook quarter in uh, China as well, because the U.S. certainly believes certain people in the United States certainly believe that a this is some sort of Chinese bioweapon that they inexplicably used on themselves first yeah. uh, in a crazy plan for it to eventually make its way to the United States and for us to be so bad at healthcare for it to be a really bad, you know, for it to really break out. Oh yeah, I like it's ridiculous. Well, I, when I was then like looking into these rumors a little bit more, I came across the fact that um, so there's a website called G News that is tied to Steve Bannon as well as a uh, disgraced Chinese businessman Guo Wenglei that on January 25th published a story that that China was about to admit that the virus had escaped from its own labs. Um, which I think is kind of interesting that, like, yeah, I mean, like, obviously, Steve Bannon, a notorious kook, um, but is mm-hmm. is spreading these types of, of, of rumors as well. And that there's this, like, weird war of, of, of truthers out there, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, nice to know we got them everywhere, right? Yeah. Um... <laughs> but no, I do not, I do not take them seriously. <laughs> In my in my limited expertise on these things, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, uh, one just the fact that it backfired horribly. Like I said, the only sign that it could actually be a U.S. plot, the fact that it would require so much planning, pure evidence that it's not a U.S. plot. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I thought maybe we could have uh, just like a few final thoughts on this. I know that as a, a, a resident Soviet Union nerd, that whenever I talk to people about the Soviet Union, my first like thing I always want to tell them is like, one thing you need to get in your head is that probably everything you think you know about the Soviet Union is not true <laughs> because you live in America and grew up in America. So it's probably like 
80% bullshit and 20% just like, you know, far enough from the truth to basically be bullshit. Um, what about China do you think like people in the US just don't fucking get that is the most annoying, I guess, for you? Yeah, I mean, there's like a lot of things, <laughs> but um, which, you know, so like, yeah, teaching my classes about like revolutionary China uh, or like, yeah, like China s- since the since the communist revolution is always like this weird experience of seeing the the stereotypes people like come into it with. And there's so much confusion over like the words that both China uses to describe itself and also like um, other people used to describe China, like things like authoritarianism or like mm-hmm. you know, Asian values of collectivism being like the reason that like China is able to make this type of response because it's something like in the culture to have this collective response. When I think it's like, you know, looking at it historically, I think it like a more reasonable idea is that it does refer back to like this history of socialist mobilization and needing to mobilize people for the cause of making a revolution. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there's that. I think, you know, and, and I do think the fact that China calls itself communist makes it very difficult to talk about like what contemporary China is like because it is this incredibly rapidly developing um, economic powerhouse in the world where people like um, at least in terms of the things they consume often live lives that are like much more similar to the lives that like people live in the U.S. and like that obviously varies greatly across like class and geography and, and all types of things. But, um, you know, I, I feel like there is, like, all these competing stereotypes that people get about sort of, like, people in Mao suits uh, in this, like, gray communist Orwellian world. But then, like, that is paired with, like, new ideas about, like, billionaires and, and driving sports cars and whatnot. And, like, and like these things are kind of all mixed together, I guess. But, um mm-hmm. So I think it's, yeah, it's this issue of people just sort of like hearing these words and making assumptions because they're, they're, they're sold them by, by news media. Um, and I think the thing that I would stress about contemporary China is that it's a lot of people trying to um, live economically stable and healthy lives. Um, as best they know possible and as the best as they can in the like current economic system and that they're not out to get you either um (laughs) i think that's this that 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 might be the biggest thing is that like people aren't out to get you like it is true that like china is growing as an economic power and aspects of its ruling elite are in competition with aspects of the United States ruling elite. But that does not mean that like China is going to take over the world um, and force us all to live like a Chinese lifestyle, not in the same way, like United States imperialism seems to be like, you know, at various points trying to like very much like really control the world in, in any number of ways. Um, so, yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, there's, <laughs> yeah, there's a certain irony in uh, living in the United States and worrying about uh, China imposing its will on the rest of the world, you know. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, what you're saying, it reminded me very much of uh, historian Bruce Cummings, who does a lot of, you know, studies Korea and does a lot of work on North Korea. One time was asked what, you know, he wanted people to know about North Korea or whatever. And I think it's it shows the state of how people in the United States see, I think, particularly Asian countries. They had a very similar response where he's like, oh, you know, the thing I just wish they could understand is that these are actual human beings. They have they have faults, but they also have, you know, good sides. They have a history that they're living in and has informed their present. And yeah, they're not trying to kill your grandma or something yeah. like, you know, that uh, it, it, I just wish that you could see him as human. Yeah. <laughs> be like in a moment like this, I think it's like, you know, like there's been a lot of suffering in China and like around the world because of COVID-19. This is not like anything anyone wanted. Right. Um, and like that, like, yeah, the people in China, like the people who got sick, the healthcare workers, the food delivery people, like, yeah, they're at many people sort of acting very heroically in incredibly difficult situation. Um, and to like see them as equals in that struggle, like against like this really shitty disease that is now like gripping the world. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that, like Definitely. the answer to things isn't then well more racist stereotypes or closing borders to everyone. It's maybe like showing solidarity like across countries about like sharing information about healthcare and like sending doctors and and whatnot as China is beginning to do um, around the world, um, and like Cuba is as well and whatnot. <laughs> like notoriously. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I, I actually learned from those same CNN uh, debates that actually we're not allowed to say anything good about Cuba. Yeah, so right. I'm going <laughs> to edit out the fact that you said there's sending doctors to help. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bernie Sanders like dared to say that like people in Cuba learn to read, which like <laughs> literacy is bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. Well. I, I think this is a pretty good spot to end at. Is there anything that you would like to point people to uh, about China generally or about what's happening now that uh, you can kind of send listeners to if they're interested? Um, I, what could we, are we going to like share some of the, the sources that we use? Uh, yeah. Define? Yeah. We'll make a, we'll make a bibliography like we did with the other episode, but just, you know, curious if you had anything that you particularly like, or you think is informative, useful, etc. cetera. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Nah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, yeah. Like read a bunch of different types of sources about stuff. Obviously <laughs> just, you know, don't take it all on the New York times. It's hard to find like good sources sometimes, but it's all about picking through. Mm. Yeah, Matt, this was the point where you're supposed to hold up your red book and tell people to read the red book. Well, read that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, Marxist.org. Read all Mao's writing, like whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you think G will ever have his own book? It could be like the oh, you know, I don't know what color it would be, the, the like a light red book. China, it's um, I think I think I have a PDF of it somewhere. I can send it to you, <laughs> but uh, oh. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah, no, like he, he does have a, like Xi Jinping thought. It, like, it's not at all the same as Mao Zedong thought, but he is like cultivating this idea of like him being a sort of like new theorist for the new direction of, of China. But, 
Oh, that's so good. Once you send us that PDF, uh, the new header for Seattle Sox is going to be upholding Xi Jinping thought. Yeah. <laughs> and we're just going to read from the book <laughs> every episode. Yeah. yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Matt, thanks for uh, coming on in this time of quarantine and whatnot. And, wait, wait, Brian, uh, can, I, can I do one more thing before you sign me off? Oh, yeah, yeah, go. I found a, a poem that someone I follow on Facebook had translated that like is a poem from a frontline nurse in Wuhan named Wong Chao Ling. And I think it's like, you know, in terms of like seeing people as human and like the struggle together, you know, should I read it? It's very like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Go for it. Up as I read it, because it's very sad. But so it goes to separate my flesh from the armor. Let me lean my body down. Let me breathe quietly. The slogans are yours. The praise is yours. The propaganda, the model workers, all are yours. I am just fulfilling my duties. Acting on a healer's conscience. Often, we go bare-skinned into battle. No time to choose between life and death. Truly no high and mighty thoughts. Please don't give me a wreath. Don't give me applause. Media reporters, please don't bother me. The so-called truth, the numbers... I don't have time or heart to follow. I'm exhausted day and night. To rest, to sleep, is more important than your praises. If you can, please go and see those ruined homes. Is smoke rising from their hearths? Those scattered phones in the crematorium, have they found their owners?